Welcome to the sermon podcast of Northridge Presbyterian Church in Dallas, Texas. I'm Betsy Sweetenberg, the pastor here, and I hope that in this podcast, you see what we seek to do week after week, approaching the stories of our faith with a holy curiosity, not shutting the book because the stories are hard or there are truths we'd rather ignore. Instead, approaching scripture, trusting that God will meet us there, full of grace and truth, teaching us something new about how we are to live in this world God so loves. There's a woman who has a practice she calls the God Box. And the God Box is a literal box that has an opening in the top of it. When I picture it in my mind, I see one of my childhood Valentine's boxes, you know, the shoe box that's been covered in construction paper with all the glittery stickers on it. Every day, this woman puts at least one slip of paper in her God box. At the end of her day, she takes a little time to reflect, and she thinks about um, the prayers that are weighing on her heart. She thinks about the things that caused her stress or anxiety during the day, and she just scribbles them in shorthand on a slip of paper and drops it in the God box. And then every month or two, she sets aside some time to go back through everything in her God box. She opens it up and pulls out all the papers. She talks about what a helpful practice of reflection and looking back this has been in her journey of faith because she says what she finds is that when she goes through all the slips of paper in the God box, she can sort them into two piles usually. She'll read a scribble and think, oh my gosh, I can't believe I was ever worried about that. Or she'll read a scribble and think, you know what? That's not my prayer anymore. God has shown up here because this situation has evolved and I have a different prayer. And so that's one stack of her notes. The other stack are things that are still relevant to her life, prayers, concerns that are still weighing on her. And so if they're still true, she drops them back into the box. But she said that as she's found this practice, Um, has helped her see just how active God has been in her life. That usually it's not more than a few slips of paper that go back into the God box. That's the beauty of slowing down long enough to look backwards. Sometimes it's so much easier to see things when you're looking through the rearview mirror than when you're in them in the moment. For the next few weeks, we're going to practice looking backwards. Last week, if you were here, you heard me talk about uh, Jesus' name, Emmanuel, God is with us. And if that is Jesus' name, then we do well to consider that that little word, with, shouldn't be so easy to skip over. That that word, with, might offer us new insight into everything we think we know about God's way of being in the world. And so we're going to take that, way, with, that word with and look back on Jesus' life and see what it opens up for us anew. And so in the spirit of looking backwards, we're going to look at Jesus' life in reverse. Today we'll start with his last week of life in Jerusalem. Next week we'll get to Galilee, and then we'll go to Nazareth and see what that promise, that God's ultimate goal is to be with us, might show us anew about these important places of Jesus's ministry. And so today we're going to read a scripture that usually 
Good Presbyterians don't read more than once or twice a year at most. It's the crucifixion story. It's a little bloody for us, so we don't dwell on it. We prefer to get right to Easter. But it is the central event of our faith. So I have selected a crucifixion narrative from the Gospel of Mark. It's the 15th chapter. If you're following along, you will find quickly that I am jumping around. So it's not you, it's me. Um, I've just selected various verses. But before we listen to the scripture, let's pray. Oh God, pour out your spirit on these words. Pour out your spirit on each of us so that something of what is seen and heard this morning may not be of me, but of you and your grace and your mercy and your salvation and your promise that you are with us always, even to the end of the age. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So here now, the scripture from Mark chapter 15. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, you say so. Then the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate asked him again, have you no answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further reply. Now at the festival, Pilate spoke to the crowds of people asking them, what do you wish me to do with this man you call king of the Jews? The crowd shouted back at Pilate, crucify him. Pilate asked them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd after flogging Jesus, handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him into the courtyard of the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole cohort. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him. And they began saluting him, Hail, King of the Jews! They struck his head with a reed, spat upon him, and knelt down in homage to him. After mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, then they led him out to crucify him. Then they brought Jesus to the place, place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes among them, casting lots to decide which each should take. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews! And with him they crucified two rebels, one on his right and one on his left. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was God's son. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Years ago, I met this incredible pastor. He's a Methodist pastor and was serving a church in Indianapolis at the time. I'd heard about his work, and I was traveling through Indianapolis, so I just called and asked to set up a meeting, and he was so kind to oblige, and he walked me around this church and started telling me some incredible stories about the ministry that had been housed at this church over the years. The church had been founded in the 1800s, and as you might expect for a church with such a long history, they had seen so many shifts in uh, their congregation, in the neighborhood that they were in, just as there were shifts in culture and society around them. Their congregation had seen a huge, huge decline and then resurgence in the wake of Indianapolis's white flight. They experienced the majority of their congregants choosing to move to the suburbs, initially with intentions to travel back to their urban church on Sunday mornings, but then finding for one reason or another that they would prefer to have a neighborhood church closer to where they were living. And so this church knew a thing or two about resurrection. This church knew a thing or two about having to reimagine everything. But he wasn't telling me that story. He told me they'd experienced a resurrection a little bit more recently with some of their mission work. And so he started talking to me. He said, one of the reasons I was so happy to come to this church is because it's a mission church. It's a congregation of people who are so excited to do things. And man, our neighborhood desperately needs the work that this congregation wants to do. The neighborhood had shifted around them so that the majority of the mission hap that they did in their city was intended to serve the people within a 10-block radius of the church because it was such a site of great need. And so this church had wonderful programs. They had a food pantry, they had a clothing closet, and they had a program that was their pride and joy, an after-school tutoring program. Because members of the congregation had been reading statistics about the children in their neighborhood and how they were falling behind in really significant ways with their schoolwork. The test scores were down, and so members of this congregation thought, we have the resources to do something. This is a clear call for how we should spend our energy. And so they did. They created this amazing after-school tutoring program, and they decided they would open the church doors Monday through Friday for hours and offer one-on-one -on -one tutoring for whatever kids in the neighborhood wanted to come. They would serve the kids a snack. They would serve them dinner before they went home. They thought, surely parents will love this. They can send their kids so they're not sitting home alone. And so they developed a great plan. They poured so much energy into the logistics of this. It required at least 50 congregants per week to be involved and do it the way they wanted to. Nonprofits took notice of their exciting plan, and the Lilly Foundation got involved, and United Way got involved. So pretty quickly, they had even more resources than they ever dreamed to create this program. The pastor told me, though, that after some years, he just had one conversation after another with congregants who were worn out and, quite frankly, disappointed 
because they felt like the program hadn't been received the way that they'd intended. And so sometimes they would go to all this trouble and get eager volunteers to show up, and they would have weeks where sometimes they only saw one or two kids. And so they were just struggling, trying to figure out what to do. They had the best intentions. Man, I've been there wanting to use my resources to fix a problem, wanting to do something because it seems so clear to me what needs to be done. You ever been there? It's so easy. We're trained to ask people, what can I do for you? We look out on the world and we're told to find our niche by asking what the world needs of us. That's our default setting. What can I do for you. If you start paying attention to that in conversations, you might realize that it comes up so much more frequently than you could ever imagine. It's something we just don't even pay attention to. We're geared to be doers and fixers and problem solvers, and there is nothing more satisfying than solving a problem. When we talk about the cross, it would be easy to assume that God feels the same way. That the cross is a reminder of God's greatest mission project. A story of the haves and the have-nots, that God had something we needed. We were the have-nots, and so God gave it to us. Amazing. Now, it is true That with Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, God did something for us that we are not capable of doing for ourselves. Salvation requires divine intervention. And if anyone or anything in this world tries to tell you otherwise, you can be sure that it's a lie. That's the scripture we just heard, that hard story of Jesus' death. That is Jesus doing something for us that we are not capable of doing for ourselves. Which means that it would be so easy to come into this sanctuary week after week and look up at this cross and think to ourselves, wow, what an amazing thing God did for us. But with the clarity of hindsight and paying attention to that simple little word with, I think that there is something more profound for us to remember about the crucifixion and the resurrection. The pastor, Mike, told me that they went back and forth trying to figure out what they were going to do about this tutoring program. They didn't want to squander the resources of these local nonprofits, but the frustration was growing, and he just didn't know what to do. But finally, he came to a group of leaders, and he said, I think I have an idea. I usually take a walk after I eat my lunch each day. And there's a guy who was always on his front porch. His name is Diamon, and I just have started talking to him recently. He grew up in this neighborhood. He's in his 30s, and he seems to be well-liked by some of the people who live close to the church. Maybe Diamon can help us out with this tutoring program. Well, the leaders loved it. They thought, maybe he has an idea for us. He'll tell us what needs to be fixed But the pastor surprised him. He said, I think we should hire Diamond to be a roving listener, 
I love the church. You can have a job, like roving listener. He said, we don't need him to do anything. We just need him to walk the neighborhood. He's already trusted by these neighbors. What if he starts showing up and asking our neighbors around the church what their gifts are, what their dreams are, what they hope for the neighborhood? It wasn't what these leaders were expecting, but they went along with it. And Diamon got straight to work. I got to sit down with him, and he told me that immediately he heard the most incredible stories of people who self-identified as gardeners and all sorts of stuff. He said, there is just a wealth of talent in our neighborhood, and it just became so clear to me when I started sitting down and having these conversations. He said, about three weeks into my roving listener project, I met this amazing woman, Maya. Maya's a young woman. She'd been raised in the neighborhood too, and she was all too aware of some of the uh, sobering statistics about the ways that kids in this neighborhood were falling behind. And so Maya really just wanted children to love learning. She didn't want to simply reverse the decline in education. She wanted the kids in this neighborhood to fall in love with reading and learning. So a couple years earlier, Maya had made an after-school tutoring program. And every afternoon, Maya would have kids from the neighborhood, hordes of children, to her house, where she helped them with their homework. And then she would create challenges for them intended to make them fall in love with learning. So she would challenge someone to read Sophocles and report back or to read some of Homer. And she created a challenge for these kids. And so once a month, she would have a big barbecue and all the kids from the after-school program would come and their parents and any close friends. And the kids would get to present their work from their challenge projects. And they celebrated all that these kids were doing. When the pastor heard this from Diamon, he just laughed. He said, well, no wonder no kids are coming to our tutoring program. There is someone who is trusted by these families, and she's doing it. And she has a relationship. And he said he saw it so clearly in that moment that they'd been spinning their wheels because they'd been fixated fixated on doing something for their neighborhood and their neighbors at the expense of being with their neighbors. All that energy and drive was good, but they got so fixated without even realizing it that their conversations had turned their neighbors into problems to be solved, not people to be loved. And this experience totally transformed the way this church did mission and lived out all of its convictions together. They always begin with people instead of programs or problems. And they found that their work is more joyful and certainly more effective now that it is rooted in relationships with the people who they hope to serve. Everything they do is rooted in that good news that God is with us. And you know what that does? That frees us up to be with each other, not simply work for each other. It can be tempting to talk about all the work God has done 
for us, and that is true, but that is not the end of the story, because if we are to learn anything from the work God does on our behalf, whether it's the cross or any other divine intervention in the Bible, it's this. God works for us, does things that we cannot do for ourselves so that relationships can be made right again. God shows up in the moments when we have prevented ourselves from being able to be with God and with each other. You see, Jesus' crucifixion wasn't God's way of saying, I know what you need better than you do. That is a true statement, though. It certainly wasn't God's way of looking down at us as problems to be solved. The crucifixion and the resurrection are God's way of saying, I so desperately want to be with you that I will do the most unimaginable thing so that we can continue the relationship. The cross is a definitive statement that we cannot ruin God's life no matter how hard we try. And if that is true of our relationship with God, then it means it is true of our lives too. We can't finally ruin our own lives either. The cross is the ultimate symbol, not of the work God has done, but of that four-letter word, with. It is the ultimate symbol of what lengths God will go to to be with us. That is salvation, that we will never find ourselves without God. That's the beauty of hindsight. It seems so much clearer when we look back with that promise in mind. God is with us. Of course the cross is a symbol of God wanting to make that promise true in a new way. So I hope that when you survey the wondrous cross, you will remember this, those final words from Jesus. I am with you always even to the end of the age. Amen. Go out into God's world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Return to no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all persons. Love and serve the Lord rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as you go, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the power of the Spirit bless you and keep you this day and always, always. Amen.